Hello, this is Justin Coleman, Senior Pastor at University UMC, and this is our podcast. I hope these messages engage your mind, touch your heart, and inspire you to serve God and your neighbor. Check us out online at universityumc.church. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, University Church family. It's so good to be with you this morning. Now, with high schools and colleges across the country closed because of the coronavirus, millions of high school and college seniors have been denied their commencement ceremonies. But last weekend, celebrities and prominent figures started to fill in that void by hosting online virtual commencement addresses. People like Steven Spielberg, Bill and Melinda Gates, John Legend, Tom Hanks, LeBron James, Ashton Kutcher, Chelsea Handler, Mike Birbiglia, and Barack Obama. And all these people sought to offer some hope and encouragement and maybe even a challenge to this graduating class of 2020 here in the midst of these uncertain times. Now, I wanna suggest this morning that there's a, a graduation of sorts happening here at the beginning of Acts. Let's read the first three verses again to set the context. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. First of all, we should look at Luke Acts as one story with two books. The Gospel of Acts, the Gospel of Luke, the first book, recounts the work and ministry of Christ on earth. The Acts of the Apostles, the second book, tells the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the church to live out the Great Commission. One story, two distinct stages. Holding these two books together is one event, Christ's Ascension. The Ascension narrative works like a cliffhanger in the season finale of Luke 24 and as a season premiere in Acts 1. The Ascension represents at once both the culminating end of God's saving history through Jesus Christ and the inaugural beginning of the church on mission. The author obviously thinks this is important enough to mention it twice, indicating that something happens here between Easter and Ascension that we should pay attention to. Now, after his resurrection, we're told, Jesus spent 40 days instructing, instructing the apostles in the Old Testament scriptures in a way that they could not have imagined before the empty tomb. With their three-year course of study, following their teacher coming to an end, the apostles are about to step into a future that they don't fully understand yet, a future of increased responsibility and challenges as they take on the work that Jesus began during his earthly ministry. Lastly, Acts records what would be Jesus' final instruction to his apostles. That sounds like a graduation to me, complete with a commencement address from Jesus himself. Let's listen in on what Jesus said to the first graduating class of followers back in Acts 1 and what he would say to those of us who follow him today. Will you pray with me? So God, we come and we ask that you would speak a word of hope, a word of encouragement, Lord, and even a word of challenge into our lives to call us out to be the church in these times so that we can lift you up and follow you wherever we go. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Facebook held a commencement ceremony that included Oprah Winfrey as one of the speakers. She did such a great job of mixing 
the moment we all find ourselves in. She said this, you know, the word graduate comes from the Latin gratis, meaning a step towards something. And in the early 15th century, graduation was a term used in alchemy to mean a tempering or refining. Every one of us is now being called to graduate, to step towards something, even though we don't know what. I think she captured how both graduating classes must have felt, the class of 2020 today, as well as the apostles in Acts 1. In uncertain times, they are being called to graduate, to step towards something, even though they don't know what it is yet. And yet it's in the midst of this time of transition and uncertainty that Jesus reminds them, the early church, of a promise. He says this in verse 4 and 5, while eating with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you hear what he said? Wait. One of his last words, one of his last instructions to the apostles was, wait. I love that Jesus delivered this over dinner. I like to imagine that it was a, a, a long, leisurely dinner. I wonder what he saw in their eyes, though, to make him ask this question or just say this. Wait. Wait here in Jerusalem. Could it be that they were thinking about bailing to head back to Galilee? In John chapter 21, we read that that's exactly what happened. Peter and the boys went fishing. I think the apostles had to be feeling a whole range of emotions, even with the resurrected Jesus walking among them, rattled yet hopeful, afraid yet joyful, unsure yet believing. The pressure the apostles and other believers had to be under in Jerusalem would make anyone want to give up and run away. And Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Father. The kind of waiting that Jesus was asking them, asking them for was not passive, but active. It's trusting in the promises of God more than the chaos or the trouble swirling around you. It can take everything you've got to do it and not bail. It's being faithful where you are. But if we get this right, then everything else will fall into place. So how are we called to wait? What does that look like for us today? I think it looks like what Pastor Daniel and the Kindred community did when they were getting ready to launch their weekly worship services before Easter. The school was rented. The material was printed. They were all ready for their first Sunday. And then the shelter-in-place orders happened. And all of their plans were interrupted. So what did they do? They waited. And they had Easter online. They waited. And they moved their small groups to Google Hangouts. They waited, and they started hosting a weekly prayer time on Tuesday nights. They waited, and Pastor Daniel started a podcast. They waited, and now they're about to host a Zoom trivia night this Saturday to gather the community that's growing around them. But lastly, they waited, and they prayed, and now they're going to announce, if they haven't already, that on June 7th, they're going to be moving to weekly worship services, not at, not at Rashkis Elementary School, but online because that's how their community is growing. Was it what they wanted or what they expected to happen? 
<laughs> Absolutely not. But they didn't let that keep them from waiting on and trusting in the Holy Spirit to grow this new worshiping community. They waited, and God showed himself faithful. Pastor Daniel and his leadership team might not have appraised might, might, might these exact words, but I bet they would recognize the raw hope that David confesses to the Lord at the end of Psalm 27 during his time of trouble. Listen to what David prays. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the promises of the Father, but especially in the troubling, uncertain times. Be faithful where you are, and we will see God's goodness. We wait because the one who promises is true. Mike Birbiglia was supposed to give the commencement address at Georgetown University, but he ended up delivering it on his iPhone in his apartment. All the way through his speech, he kept talking about how this pandemic, the economy tanking, loved ones getting sick and even dying, let alone having to spend the last semester in college back home with your parents, was part of no one's plan A. As we read in verse 6, the apostles had a plan A. You hear it in the question that they asked Jesus. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Embedded in that question was a century-old longing for the Jewish Messiah who would restore Israel to its place of prominence, to, to be the number one political, military, and economic power in the region, if not the world. And the apostles were hoping that they were going to get to help Jesus run it. They were ready to start picking out their corner offices in Jerusalem, but the problem was that Jesus had a different plan. In fact, Jesus had been pretty actively resisting that agenda for over three years and had already been crucified rather than call down the armies of heaven. And yet, even among his closest followers, this old hope popped up again and again. No, Jesus didn't share their plan A. He had a different one, and it revolved around the job description he gives them in verses 7 and 8. Read with me. He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Lord has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. If you're responsible for hiring or you've recently applied for a new position, then you know just how important a job description can be. We had a friend who figured that out after she graduated. As a social work major, she wanted to be in the nonprofit world. And so she applied for every job opening that she heard about. She applied for so many that she forgot where she had sent her application. And one day, an organization calls, she goes in for an interview, and by that night, she'd been offered the job. So we go out and we celebrate, and I asked her, so what are you going to be doing? And she laughed because she couldn't remember. She had applied to so many places and was so excited about the offer, she just said yes. Well, it wasn't a week later when we were out again that she told us she'd figured out what her job was. I'm like, well, how? She goes, well, I'm sitting at my desk and my boss brought a bouquet of flowers and a gift certificate and a card that said, happy Secretary's Day. I said, was that what you were applying for? She goes, no, 
no, I think I need to find another job. Job descriptions matter. And for whatever reason, the apostles didn't understand their job description. Their plan A was they were going to be rulers with Jesus. Jesus' plan A was that they would be witnesses. There's so much we could unpack here, but I believe we first need to recover the job description of a witness. The Greek word for witness is actually martyr, a word whose meaning, on the one hand, speaks of those whose lives, who have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, whether in the Roman Colosseum or a Chinese prison or on a foreign mission field. And on the other hand, refers to our day-to-day lives. For today, I want to focus on the latter. In his book, Transforming Mission, David Bosch lifts up the significance of early Christians' witness through their day-to-day conduct. Bosch writes, A far greater significance for mission than the ministry of the peripatetic preacher or the monk was the conduct of the early Christian, the language of love on on their lips and in their lives, their propaganda of the deed. In the final analysis, it was not the miracles of the itinerant evangelists and wandering monks that impressed the populace. Miracle workers were a familiar phenomenon in the ancient world, but the exemplary lives of ordinary Christians. He continues, The testimonies of the enemies of the church, such as Celsus and Julian the Apostate, frequently mention the extraordinary conduct of Christians, often with reference to the fact that this conduct had been a factor in winning people over to the Christian faith. It was their lives, their examples, fellowship, transformed character, joy, endurance, and power that certainly were crucial factors in the phenomenal growth of this, su- this new superstition during the first centuries of the Christian era. Next, we need to be clear how we're able to be Jesus' witnesses. It's not by taking a class or getting a degree, or singing in the choir, though Tim might tell you otherwise. It's not a plan or a program or four spiritual laws. It's about a person, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to be witnesses and signposts of the risen Savior. John 14, 25-26 says it this way, All this I have spoken while I am with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said. Pope Francis explains the role of the Holy Spirit this way. In a word, we can say that the Holy Spirit carries out three actions. He prepares, he anoints, and he sends. We are empowered to be Jesus' witnesses and to live out what Bosch calls this exemplary lives of ordinary Christians exactly where we need his power first and most for our families and our friends, our colleagues and our classmates, our neighbors and our world. I believe Jesus and the world are longing to see this kind of ordinary Christian witness. Spirit help us, because after all, we are Jesus' plan A. Of all of the commencement speeches I listened to, My favorite is a coin toss between Will Ferrell's 2017 USC commencement speech and Barack Obama's this last weekend to high school seniors. What stuck out in Obama's speech was the fact that he addressed the uncertainty and fear the graduating class 
of 2020 has to be feeling, let alone the rest of the world, and still challenge them to step up and seize the moment. Here's my favorite line. With everything suddenly feeling like it's up for grabs, this is your time to seize the initiative. Nobody can tell you anymore that you should be waiting your turn. Nobody can tell you anymore that this is how it's always been done. More than ever, this is your moment, your generation's world to shape. I remember a time when I felt like everything was up for grabs. It was right after the birth of our oldest son, Cannon. Keith's mom, Pam, had come to be with us for the first couple of weeks as we welcomed Cannon into the home. And I was so thankful that she was there. I could ask her questions, and she could help me take care of both of them. But just when I thought we were getting the hang of it, Pam started talking about needing to go home. Well, I heard it, and I understood what she was saying, but I didn't think there was any way that she would leave us alone with this baby. But then one day, I find myself carrying her bags to her car, getting more anxious with each step. And it wasn't until she unlocked her door that I just blurted out. You can't leave us with this baby. We're amateurs. We don't know what we're doing. You have to give us a little more time. I have to believe the apostles must have thought everything was up for grabs again when Jesus started to ascend. Sure, he had talked about going up to the Father on multiple occasions, but I don't think any of them truly knew what that meant until it started to happen. I can even hear them saying the same things to Jesus that I said to my mother-in-law. You can't leave us alone. We're amateurs. We don't know what we're doing. You've got to give us a little more time. Here's how Acts tells it. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this is how the angels found them. Heads turned up, scanning the skies, mouths wide open as the fear and the panic of Jesus leaving them took hold. Not exactly a confidence-inspiring image. I wonder how long they would have stayed that way if the angels hadn't pulled their heads out of the clouds. This is what New Testament scholars refer to as ascension deficit disorder. And I want to suggest that there are three truths from the Gospel of John that are needed to treat this spiritual ADD. And unlike the apostles, we don't have to wait 10 days to discover them. And the first is this, Jesus did not abandon us. He didn't leave us alone. John 14, 16 through 18 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After rebuking them and telling them to get their heads out of the clouds, the angels assure the apostles and those who will follow them that Jesus will return. And ever since, the church has rehearsed this promise every time we confess the mystery of our faith as found in our communion liturgy. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Jesus has not abandoned us. John 16, 7 says this, 
But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God was a necessary condition for God to fulfill his promise of sending the Holy Spirit to live among and in his people. And the third truth is this. We are called to finish what Jesus began to do and teach. John 14, 12 through 14 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I think this is the biggest invitation the church has had to pull our heads out of the clouds. Christ has empowered his followers by sending his Holy Spirit so that we can finish the work he began so long ago. In fact, we need to ask the Spirit to wake up our hearts and our imaginations to the greater things that Jesus was talking about here in John 14. Now, don't read too much into this, but I heard the Spirit of God speaking to the church through Oprah in another commencement speech. I'm going to take some liberties in who it addresses. Can you, the church of 2020, show us not how to put the pieces back together again, but how to create a new and more evolved normal, a world more just, kind, beautiful, tender, luminous, creative, and whole? We need you to do this because the pandemic has illuminated the vast systemic inequalities that have defined life for too many, for too long. Did you hear that? Not the same old things, not the usual things, definitely not the broken things, but the greater things that Jesus would be a part of. Just things, kind things, beautiful things, tender things, luminous things, creative things, whole things. In describing the role of the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry, Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in his hometown when he wanted to describe the kinds of things that he was up to. Luke 4, 18 through 19 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I would add healing for the body, mind, and emotions, eradicating isms of all kinds that devalue and destroy, ending the achievement gap in institutional racism in all of our schools, providing food, clean water, and health care for those without, healing our planet and reversing the effects of global warming, ending war and greed, and the greater things that live in tomorrow that will only be revealed in time. We have some work to do, church. Greater things to be done in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Please pray with me. Father, I ask that you would pour out the power of your Holy Spirit on us anew so that we can be witnesses for you in Chapel Hill, 
the triangle, North Carolina, and to the ends of the earth. As in Isaiah 61, I pray that your spirit would rest upon us, that you would anoint us to proclaim good news to the poor and proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to do greater things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, we love you. We hope you have a great week. And may the peace of Christ be with you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can visit us at universityumc.church where you can find services, events, and other ways you can get involved. Remember that we love you. We hope you have a great week. We hope the peace of Christ is with you. And we hope to see you soon.